and never used or heard the phrase caught between a rock and a hard place. Very familiar to many of us. Uh, even if it's not familiar to you, you can have uh, some kind of uh, context for just from hearing it. Rock and a hard place. Okay, yeah, both of those things don't seem very good to be caught between. Uh, you can understand it pretty easily. What we don't, uh, what we may not know in uh, the usage of it. Uh, is where the, the origin of it seems to come from. The origin of it uh, supposedly is from uh, Greek mythology, uh, the writing of Homer uh, in the, the Odyssey, uh, where you have Odysseus and his men returning from the battle of Troy, trying to get back home, uh, and all of the misadventures that take place uh, within that writing. Uh, he draws the uh, wrath of the gods there uh, throughout the writing. He just encounters the wrong sorts of people and all, all sorts of shipwrecks and dangerous monsters and all these sorts of things. And at one point in the story, uh, Odysseus and his men in their ship uh, encounter the rock in a hard place situation. Uh, but the phrase there, or the phrasing there, is uh, between Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla on one side is a multi-headed hydra monster uh, that would threaten to completely destroy the ship and all the people on board, and Charybdis is a, a massive whirlpool that they wouldn't be able to withstand, but if they're going to get home, they've got to make their choice between those two very difficult decisions there. Uh, I'm quite thankful that the phrase is now rock and a hard place so that I don't have to Man, I'm sure feeling like I'm caught between Scylla and Charybdis. Do you know what I mean? No. I have no idea what you're talking about. The reason I bring that up uh, is because whether you knew that origin or not, that influence had a way of, uh, that, that culture had a way of influencing you, whether you knew it or not, uh, to a phrase that you just used or heard all of the time. Uh, in, those uh, philosophies and cultures have a way of influencing us in ways that we may not always be able to recognize. Uh, there are ideas and practices that go on that give more influence over, have more influence over us that might uh, direct us in certain ways without us actually realizing that all of that stuff has happened. Uh, normally, it's, it's little movements here and there uh, until we find ourselves, after some amount of time, uh, largely moved from where we were months or years before. Uh, that is the case with uh, the, the subject that we're talking about uh, this morning. Uh, a very it has a very large presence within our culture uh, and has the capability of influencing uh, people in major ways. It already is, as we will talk about uh, this morning. And we have a responsibility, not just to this subject, uh, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up uh, is, is I know that there uh, are some, or there were some in the lead up to it, uh, there may be some still now, uh, wondering why are we talking about these sorts of things. It's because we have a responsibility uh, to biblically address things that are happening. If we're, if we're trying to reach people where they are, we have to understand where they are. Uh, we have to understand uh, how the Bible speaks into where they are, uh, and what the Bible says is our responsibility uh, to bring people to God uh, where God wants them to be. 
uh, to change their lives. That's most of what we're going to spend our time doing this morning. Uh, our, we're going to follow the same kind of structure that we have of being informed about the issue, being prepared uh, to give a biblical response, and then being involved, talking about how we can be involved. To that point, though, I, I want to say this. I strongly encourage you to join us tonight because we're going to uh, continue a, a longer discussion on the involvement idea. Uh, because for for most all of us, uh, and for most of really uh, the world, this is a, a much newer topic to try and navigate, uh, to try and figure out. Uh, so we wanted to spend a little more time this evening thinking about, okay, what are maybe some more practical ways, uh, what are some things that the Bible speaks to as far as how we can be more involved in the lives of those uh, that are struggling, yes, struggling with transgenderism, there are some principles Uh, within scripture we can look to uh, for that purpose. If you've got your Bible with you, turn over to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be there in just a little bit. Uh, But first we need to be informed uh, a little bit as to the the issue at hand here. Uh, I'm going to read, and I've mentioned this book. uh, I don't remember why. Uh, I I mentioned it probably a year ago uh, on a Wednesday night, I think. It's a book called Embodied. That's where the name for the series came from. Uh, because I found this book particularly helpful. This book just deals with uh, transgender identities and things like that. Uh, I do uh, recommend it. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything, but as far as the work that's being done, uh, Dr. Uh, Preston in this, this study here has done a very good job of handling the subject and the church's responsibility and what we see in Scripture. In fact, uh, a the, the body of our lesson today about what the Bible says about this comes from several of the points uh, that he made within this. Uh, but it's not, just, uh, it's not just for this subject that I, I used the title embodied or, or even uh, referred to the book. This whole idea of being embodied, and we'll see this probably in a little bit today uh, and in a couple weeks, uh, really threads through all four of these subjects. All four of these that we're going to be dealing with, whether we know it or not, are all connected in a very similar way, Uh, and we'll be sure to tie all of that up when we get to the end. Uh, But I bring up that book today because we're going to lean on it in a few different sections as well as uh, scripture to, to understand this issue a little better. Let's talk about being informed as to, just like we were last week, uh, nature and nurture when it comes to uh, this particular subject. Uh, Nature is very interesting when it comes to the topic of transgenderism. This isn't a new thing, uh, though we maybe understand the statistics better. There are people that are genuinely born uh, with uh, both uh, physically, uh, either containing the the DNA or uh, within their actual physical body parts, showing uh, both male and female. That does happen. Uh, 1.7% of the population has uh, a trait uh, that uh, involves both, both genders that does occur. Uh, that being said, there are about, uh, right now, uh, diagnosed somewhere around 150 different uh, scenarios where you have this trait, you know, number one of 150, you have, you know, number 50 of 150, 1.7% of the population Now, here's the next important number with all of this. That 1.7, or most of that 1.7% 
it's very clear from an outward perspective, male or female. There's no question there from a physical body standpoint. In 0.5% of the population, uh, you end up with a situation where there are physically both uh, various parts present uh, that you would look at and go, male or female, well, it's ambiguous, hard to tell either direction. That's 0.5% of the population, but it does happen. Now, most of the time, uh, within that 0.5%, uh, there is a kind of clear pushing one direction eventually uh, towards either way. Uh, the chromosomes are present for both. Uh, the physical body parts are present for uh, either or. And eventually, uh, there is a push towards one direction or the other. Uh, but it's important to lay that out. Uh, the the uh, nature part of that is called intersex. Somebody with an intersex condition uh, where they have at least the chromosomes and very rarely, but it does happen, uh, the body parts of both genders. Uh, that does occur, uh, though it's not very often. It's extremely rare uh, for the ambiguous to happen, even for the 1.7% uh, of some kind of trait there. But it's important for us to understand that because in this discussion, whether it's on the news or with uh, those in the medical community talking about these things or wherever, uh, this is going to come up uh, and we need to understand that it, it does exist. Okay? If you're caught off guard with that and don't know how to answer, well, what do you do with people that are born this way? Because that does happen, though very rarely. We have to have an answer for that. But we also need to understand 0.5% uh, is what we're talking about. The statistics that we're going to see in just a moment are not 0.5%. Uh, in fact, it's going to be rather alarming. Uh, those that are uh, mentally, though it does have some physical, uh, we'll say manifestations, stress and anxieties and things like that. Uh, but mentally speaking, those that are uh, feeling like they're in one gender body, uh, but believe that they are the other. And that number, that percentage, is much higher, as we'll see here. Most of the time, uh, this issue comes down to one of uh, nurture the environment uh, that people find themselves in. Uh, there is something right now, uh, gender dysphoria was the term uh, within the uh, DSM-5 uh, and has been for some time. This is what uh, you, you get medical diagnoses from uh, the DSM-5, uh, and gender dysphoria was the term that was used for a considerable amount of time, uh, and alongside that you have what's now called rapid onset. Here's what that means. Uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria is there was no sign in this individual that they were struggling with which gender am I or am I genderless or et cetera, all of the numbers of variations that exist now. There was no indicator of any of that, but now all of a sudden they're struggling with gender identity. That's called rapid onset gender dysphoria of there wasn't anything here, but now it's here. Here are some statistics uh, about rapid onset gender dysphoria. Keeping in mind 1.7% of the population has a genetic trait, and 0.5% of the population uh, is going to have some uh, physical uh, of both. In many Western countries, we've seen a massive spike in teenagers questioning their gender. For instance, 
the Tavistock Center in London, the main gender clinic in the United Kingdom, treated 51 children and teenagers in 2009 who had gender dysphoria or were identifying as trans. 2009, 51. Uh, 17 of those 51 were females. Jumping forward into 2016, a seven-year jump, the same clinic saw 1,766 children and teenagers, and in 2019, it saw 2,364. That's a massive, massive jump from 51 to seven years later, 1766, to two years after that. So 10 years from the original, we go from 51 to 2,364. And by the way, of that number, 1,740 are females. So when it was 51, there was only 17 females, but now when it's this larger number, it's disproportionately females that are struggling with gender identity and those things. That's more than a 5,000% increase among females in 10 years. Researchers have documented similar upsurges among biological females in particular in many Western countries, Sweden, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. It's happening everywhere, where now all of a sudden there is a massive uptick in those that are struggling with this idea of who I, the, the gender I feel that I am is not the one that I, is not the body that I'm presenting as. There, there is a difference between these two things. And just like last week when we looked at the subject, or two weeks ago when we looked at the subject of homosexuality and saw the, uh, yes, the temptation being present from a nature side of things, but the overwhelming uh, positive association with uh, that identification within the culture. You put that kind of pressure especially on those that are children and teenagers, uh, you're going to see people swayed in that direction. The same thing is happening with this particular subject of transgenderism. People that are uh, being told that it's not just okay, but good and even appropriate uh, to question uh, whether you internally match this thing externally. And we're seeing a massive increase in all those things from the cultural pressure, the nurture, the systems that people are finding themselves in. This is the issue. You, you've got people that are struggling, and we'll talk about that struggle in just a moment, some quotes, that are struggling with this what I look like outwardly doesn't seem to match what I feel inwardly that I am. That there's a split between physical body and this, whether you want to call it a soul or whatever else, consciousness, this, this thing inside of me doesn't match the physical outer part of me. And we'll come back to this idea in just a moment in another way, but here I, I want to read just some short quotes from uh, some of these teenagers that we're talking about. One said, it's like every single person in the room is staring at you all the time. Uh, they continued that quote uh, to say, it's like your, uh, it's like your heart is, is open and on display and everybody's just kind of coming around and 
poking at it and looking at it and trying to figure things out and then moving on. It, just by being in a room, they feel like they're exposed to the whole world, everybody that's around them. And they ended the quote this way, I feel inadequate, broken, and just want to disappear. This is how they, they, they live. It's how this particular teen just goes about uh, each day being in a room full of people, feeling like this. This next one we might be able to understand to some degree. It's like cramming two wrong puzzle pieces together. If you've ever tried to put a puzzle together and gone, I think this goes here, and you're just trying to, it looks like it lines up, and just trying to smash this thing together. And the, the frustration that we have trying to put together a puzzle and going, oh, this doesn't quite fit. This is how one teen described the way that they feel each and every day. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, well, we need to, there, there are two things you can do with this. You can say, all right, we need to affirm the body-soul split, or we need to affirm that those things aren't to be split. And we've got to figure out which way to go. That's this next part. But I want us to remember, and we'll say this at the end again, I know that this particular topic uh, is uh, heavily uh, political. It's very much discussed uh, quite a bit, used as uh, a way to uh, sway voters in either direction. Uh, I know that it's a highly politicized thing. I know that there is a lot of, there are shows that we are getting more and more of affirming these things, and that's kind of being pushed on us heavily culturally. And so there's a, a real temptation for us to go, it's bad, it's evil, this has got to stop, this, it's just propaganda, it's this thing here. Whether or not that stuff is true, these are people that we're talking about. People that, uh, as we read in Genesis 1.27, made in God's image. And we're trying to help. We're, we're trying to understand what is it that God has laid out so that we can help them get to be in the best place possible, somebody following after God, uh, abiding by God's uh, moral and ethical, his, his divine law, the, the best possible life that we could live, not just then, but now. How can we help those people? And so whatever you might be thinking connected to this subject of, well, I've been hearing this in the news and this stuff is happening over here and isn't that horrible and isn't, there's room for that. But do not forget that we're talking about real people that are really hurting and struggling, that are really feeling like this, cramming two wrong pieces together. How do we help them in that situation? Let's talk about that. Uh, when we come to preparation and Bible, and I know you're, you're still open to Genesis. We're going to be there for a few points. One, one moment. Remember when we started at the, that very first line of rock in a hard place, and it's rooted in uh, Greek mythology and the story writing, which is rooted in their philosophy to some degree, uh, and how that still has an impact on us today. It can still influence us, uh, us today. That's true of this idea right here. That there is a split between body and soul. Uh, that there's a split between the internal and the external. We still, uh, you, and, and I mean us, you, and you may not realize this, we use this language when we talk about 
some things. That there is a, a, a thing here that needs to be, and these are the words of, or at least an encapsulation of a philosophy of Plato, it's still studied to this day, and it's evolved and, amorph- and morphed over time uh, as to the definition, but here's the general idea. You are a soul trapped in a body, longing to break free. That was an idea that was put forth a few hundred years before Jesus came onto the scene in this world. It was continued on from Plato to Socrates to Aristotle in some way, uh, which he was the teacher of uh, Alexander the Great, so as Rome is going about conquering, they're bringing along this philosophy with them. And when we get into 1 John and Revelation and John's Gospel, John is responding to something called Gnosticism. And you know what the teaching of Gnosticism is? If you boil it all down, you are a soul trapped in a body longing to break free. The idea persisted, continued on. And what it teaches is that this thing in you and this thing outwardly are meant to be separated. That God cares about the one and not the other. That there is to be no connection between those. That the body is evil, but the soul inside is good. And God's trying to rescue the thing inside, the soul, and he doesn't care about the body. That isn't true. Never has been. And it's not today. Let's look at Genesis. Uh, a few points here. In Genesis 1.27, here's, here's the first thing that we're told about body and soul, that it's not to be split, but instead, uh, the body is essential to image-bearing. Genesis 1.27, read it a moment ago. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we're talking about this creation of the physical body within Genesis, uh, giving this explanation for uh, our origin. And the thing that, one of the many things that sets the biblical creation account apart from all of these other creation accounts that exist. And you can go read many of those. There's chaos, and then more chaos, and then eventually enough of the beings die that now there's peace, and here comes the creation and all of this. That's in most of the stories. That's not in the biblical story. That's not in the biblical account. The other part of that, too, is those that are gods, those that are in God's image are those that are rulers, kings, authorities, and anybody that they decide is an ambassador for them. And Moses, writing Genesis down, turns that idea completely on its head and says, no, the people that are in God's image, everyone, you, you don't need to be a king, you don't need to be an ambassador to the king, you, every person that exists, made in God's image. It's that word image you've probably heard lessons on before. I think maybe I've talked about it uh, before. I know I've talked about it before, but I don't know to this extent. There's a lot of ideas of what does it mean to actually be in God's image. But one of the things that I have never done that I'm thankful uh, within this embodied book that he has done is I've never thought to look up the word image and see how it's used in other places or if it's even used at all in the Old Testament. Turns out it is uh, somewhere around 40 times. And a lot of those times it is translated as idol. 
You know, we hear idle and we go, oh, that's, that's really bad. And yeah, it can be, but, w- but what is an idol? That's the discussion we need to have here. What's, what's an idol? It is a physical, crafted thing that you can see, that you can touch, and it represents, they actually believed, these idols that they would craft out of wood and all of this, that the God they were worshiping might inhabit those things. There's an interesting idea. But they, they, they think that these physical things that they made, that they can see, that they can touch, were visible representations of the invisible God that they worship. So when we read, you are an idol of God, image of God, we, and this means our physical bodies, not just our physical, not just our, the thing inside of us as well, but our physical too, is a visible representation of the invisible God we worship. When Jesus comes onto the scene and walks the earth, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's in God's image. And that's the language that's used of God's creation from the beginning. And our body is a part of that, showing people who God is. The body is essential to image bearing. Number two, still in Genesis Male and female are presented to us as categories in Genesis 1. Uh, this is verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, right at the end of verse 27, he says, Male and female, he created them. And in verse 28, gives this command of, Here is what you go and do. We can look at our biology and understand that there is a way that the, uh, that the human species continues to exist. That we're designed in a certain way to be able to be fruitful and multiply. And God made it that way. Well, what does that involve? Our bodies. And it's, it's not that our body is separate from us internally. Those things are to be joined together. Male and female are presented to us as categories with roles and responsibilities. The same language is used when it comes to the animals boarding the ark and all of those things. And it's not that we should think of uh, sexual behavior as animalistic. That's not the point of what we are saying here because it isn't that. And we'll talk about that in a couple lessons. The point is the way God has created things. He creates this way or that way, and one of the purposes, one of the purposes of that is for the physical ability to continue that growth of that particular species. The body is presented to us in two ways, binary, one or the other, uh, not, uh, not as some cultural idea that sprang up over time and then we randomly assigned roles to this group or that group. And in reality, and this is what we hear today, in reality, uh, you can be and look and function and, and however you want to, it does not matter. Trying to erase all distinctions. We were created with those distinctions in place. Male and female are presented to us as categories. Number three, still in Genesis, over to chapter two. And then we'll have a big jump into the New Testament. Uh, bodies are viewed as sacred. Genesis 2, 21 and 22. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought, it, and brought her to the man. Uh, some of your translations aren't going to have took one of the ribs. It's going to say taken from the, the side. Uh, the name woman, uh, the, the title we should say, a woman is just, well, I'm a man, you're a woman because you're out of man. It's just, yeah, a- Adam looked at the situation and said, oh, out of man, woman, there we go. That's, that's how this works. This idea of from the side, or, or rib as ESV has it, uh, is a word. I said uh, image shows up 40 times. That was incorrect. It's this word. Uh, rib shows up somewhere around 40 times in the Old Testament. Almost never rib. It's side. And we won't read it this morning for the sake of time, but uh, if you want to write this down, Ezekiel 41, 5 through 11. And you're going to read that and go, what in the world does this have to do with bodies being sacred? Uh, you can add in there verse, I, I want to say 21 as well, uh, of Ezekiel 41. When you read that section, you'll go, okay, we're just reading about a temple being built. But you'll read over and over again the word, and the side of the temple was like this, and the side of this thing within the temple was this way, and it's this word that we get rib right here in Genesis 2. You know, the, the song that we sang right before I came up here, Sanctuary? Uh, the idea that we mentioned a moment ago that they believed that these idols that they put together, that the God that they, they worshipped would inhabit those things. Man, if that doesn't sound like this biblical idea of God inhabiting his people... It's not a new idea. That was the idea that they had. They just got it all wrong. Or they invited the wrong thing in. God speaks throughout the New Testament very heavily of God being within you, his temple. We're talked about in temple terms. And we'll see that in a little bit too. We're talked about as this temple of God. That is a sacred place. The temple, the tabernacle first, and then the temple as they came along, that was where the presence of God was. And then when we get into the New Testament and we are called temples, the idea is the same, where the presence of God is sacred. God can't be around sinful things. God cannot uh, inhabit sinful places and so if we're dealing with a well our bodies are just horrible evil things that's that's not what genesis teaches that's not what the new testament teaches what we're told is god dwells within the individual within our bodies our bodies are sacred they're sacred from the beginning of creation they continue to be can they be used for evil absolutely but they are a part of our being like God. Being sacred, being holy, set apart. That's what that word is, sacred. Being holy like God is. They're presented to us as categories with roles and actions that we care about, uh, that, that we are to fulfill. Uh, and then we are presented as these things that are visible representations of this invisible God. Reflections of him through and with our bodies. Jumping 
way ahead uh, into Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, in talking about marriage, quotes the sections that we've just read out of Genesis. Now, he's not talking about transgenderism. He's talking about marriage. Or, uh, he, yeah, he's talking about marriage. When we discuss homosexuality, we didn't two weeks ago, but a lot of the times uh, people will go to this verse here. Because while Jesus didn't say homosexuality is wrong, what he affirmed is this is how it's been from the beginning. This is how it works. And Jesus doesn't need to go through the list and say, all, here in about a thousand, couple thousand years, there's going to be a hundred different ideas about how all this stuff works. What Jesus does is, this is what it looks like. This is how God created it. That's it. He doesn't need to go through the list and list all hundred-something things that didn't even exist in their minds at that time. But in this discussion about marriage, as Jesus is quoting it, he says this, Matthew 19, 4 through 5, uh, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In affirming marriage, Jesus is also affirming God's creation account and affirming that uh, the whole male-female distinction, that you are one or the other, is normative, that this is how this works. And Jesus is not going to list out all of the hundreds of ideas that exist 2,000 years later that the Greeks and the Romans and the Jewish people weren't, didn't even enter into their mind yet. What Jesus does is he says, this is how God made it to work. That's it. And Jesus affirms uh, this, ca- this binary category of male and female. Last one here before we go into involve. In 1 Corinthians 6... Remember our temple language? Hold on to that. Uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Paul, in discussing this, talks about our bodies, and he says that the body is joined with our morality and our personhood. Here's what he says, uh, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, that idea of our bodies being a sacred space, Paul brings that up again here in this section. Your body is a temple. That's not coincidental that that language is being used. That's an idea that is threaded through all of Scripture, and Paul is drawing on that idea, something that they understood quite well, uh, something that maybe we've lost a little bit of, within our idea. But alongside that, he says, you aren't your own. You, you are not your own. Who you are. And he says you after he talks about our body, and the way that he ends this section is, glorify God in your body. If you want to be pleasing and live a good life and follow after God, you do that with your body too. And this speaks right to that whole body-soul split, because it existed as a philosophy then, it exists as one now. It has persisted all of these years. And you have Paul stating very clearly, you can't just go do whatever you want and say, well, my body's evil, it wants to do evil things, but it's okay because I can keep this thing inside me unstained from the sinful world. No, you can't. Paul says, "If if you want to glorify God, you do it with all of you, and all of you includes 
the body that you were given. It's both. God wants both. God made both. And he doesn't intend for those things to be separated. Let's talk about involvement very quickly as we close. And again, I want to encourage you very strongly to come back tonight as we spend a little bit more time getting into this idea. But I want to leave you with a word. We'll talk about a couple facets of that word very quickly. But this word love. We love, number one, in truth. The, the, the five things that we just discussed, and it's, there's more, but the five things that we just discussed about God's view of the body, that it's not this evil thing, it's not a mistake, it's not something that he messed up on and said, well, uh, that's not so good anymore, but it's okay because there's still this thing in you and I can rescue that, and then we'll be good to go. There's a reason Jesus comes in the flesh. There's a reason he dies in the flesh. Because God cares about the body too. God cares about what you do with your body because he made it, and it bears his image, and it's how we live these moral lives in accordance with God, and it's the way that he made the world to function appropriately on that binary that so many are wanting to erase. Now, we have to hold to the truth about our bodies. Now, some of the ways that we do that are not just with our language— but also with our own actions and behaviors. If we're going to say, my body is from God, it's a good thing, I glorify God with my body, then you actually have to do those things, or you're showing people, I say that, maybe I believe it, but not really. If we're going to affirm the truth of our bodies are a good thing from God, we must make sure that we are doing the appropriate things with our bodies. Setting the example, being the visible representations of the God that we represent. Number two, we love with, with grace. These are people made in God's image. They're not political statements, even though some are being used as political statements. They're people that are struggling, uh, that are looking for help and trying to navigate this idea in their head of, I, I am so uncomfortable with my body and my internal help. And the culture is reaching out and saying, here's how we will help you. And it's early yet, but we're starting to see some of the consequences of that advice. It's only going to get worse. We've got to make sure that we come in, in truth. We love in truth and we love in grace. Understanding that these are people that you're going to have to struggle with. It's not as simple as, well, I'll go down the list of the five things that my preacher said and that lays it out pretty clearly and boom, you're good. No, you are going to be struggling with and trying to help. And it's going to take a while and it's going to be a process and there's going to be a lot of patience, uh, a lot of tears, maybe a lot of anger, but we're trying to help people get to where God wants them to be. I want to read this quote from uh, towards the end of Preston's book here. Our posture through this whole conversation matters enormously. As you work to accommodate the needs and concerns of trans people or anyone else on a case-by-case -case basis, be sure not to treat these accommodations as hassles or a distraction from important kingdom work. Listen to this. 
meeting the needs of people, removing any barriers that stand between them and the gospel is important kingdom work. If, if, if you're going to look at this and go, all right, I, my goal is I'm trying to get these people uh, baptized, I'm trying to get them saved, and then we'll try to, you know, but let's speed through this process in order to get there. Helping people understand who Jesus is, what he's done for them, that is kingdom work. Don't rush through that. The, the sitting with people in their pains and hurts and struggles and, and being patient with them and walking through them in those things is kingdom work. And you may do that for years before somebody decides, I want to give my life over to Christ. You are doing the work of the kingdom in that time. Christ died for everyone. But he also had a particular yearning to reach those who had been marginalized and ignored by the majority, and so should we. And if you're not fully convinced of that, uh, read through Luke's gospel and see how often Luke highlights Jesus going to those that society has ignored or pushed to the fringes and see just who Jesus goes to there. I want to end uh, talking about the same person we began with. Uh, in uh, Odysseus' story of returning home, they come to a point where, uh, and this, this exists, and if you've ever seen the Pirates of the Caribbean's movie, it's, I don't remember which one, uh, but there are the sirens, these things that sit out on the rocks and try to, uh, they sing these beautiful songs and they lure these sailors ultimately to their death. If we can sing this music to them, it will bring the boat, it will bring the ship over, and then we can destroy them. Well, that's in uh, this story as well. And Odysseus knows that's coming up. So here is the thought of Odysseus. He told his men, strap me to the mast, just, just take ropes, tie me down so I can't go, because I'm going to want to go, don't let me do it. So tie me to the mast so I can't move, and stick wax in my ears so I can't hear. That's his solution. The problem is, by the time they get to where the sirens are, as the story goes, the wax was not enough. So as they're sailing and pushing through, uh, the wax in his ears didn't cover like it did for the other sailors, and so he's there struggling against the rope, trying to ignore it until they can just push through and get to the other side. That's one way of handling things. There's another Greek mythology story about Jason and the Argonauts going to uh, capture the Golden Fleece, and they go on this adventure to do so. They also run across sirens, or are about to. And Jason has this idea. He's got a, a crewmate on the ship uh, whose name's Orpheus. He's known for his musical talents and abilities, gifted by the gods to play music. And so Jason says... We will drown out the music of the sirens with a better song. Song of the heavens. And so he instructs Orpheus to play music as they go through, and they pass through singing a better song than the sirens that are around them. We can try to stop up our ears and ignore or shout or pretend like it doesn't exist and go, I just need to make it through to the other side over here. Or, 
we can say we have a better song to sing. We have something better than what the world out here is offering for these people that are struggling. Something that will change their lives now and forever. We can choose to be silent and keep that to ourselves. Or we can choose to sing that song to them in their time of need to help them come to Jesus and have their lives changed for the best. Again, that may take months, years. You may work and it doesn't result in that love. Because these are people that are hurting and struggling. Tonight we'll talk about some more specific ways to carry that out, some ways that Jesus reached out to these marginalized people. This morning, that's what I want to leave you with. God cares about the body that he created you in. Don't use that message as a weapon, but sing it beautifully to others in your actions, in your words, in your behavior. Hold to that truth, but let others know through what they see, through what you say, that it is the best possible life to live, the life lived in Jesus Christ. If this morning you want to make that commitment to him, to come to him, live that life. If you are struggling with what we talked about this morning or anything else, don't don't wait. God loves you. We will love you too and help you get to where you need to be. Let us know. Come as we stand and sing.